tell you, um, many of you who were here last week know that I wasn't here. Uh, my brother Dan Overbeef filled in, and he just didn't fill in. He, I fed you from Psalm 113. Um, but while he was here and I was away, I, uh, I had one of the best weekends I've had in a long time. And um, I went away on Friday, Friday night and Saturday with a, with a beautiful lady. Um, not my wife, but my daughter. Um, some of you know that she's, uh, she's a competitive cheerleader, and she's been doing it for a number of years, and I haven't had a chance because of the dynamics of our family and also where it falls on, on the weekend to go see her perform, and uh, either last fall or, or this winter. So this was the first time I got to see her. So we went away. Uh, we put um, on my little Pandora on my iPhone into the car Justin Bieber radio all the way down. <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell you, we heard all kinds of interesting music. I was exposed to um, a whole culture that is, well, it's, it was awesome. And then my daughter performed. She did great. And um, she went up on stage, and they announced seventh place, sixth place, you know, fifth, fourth, all the way to first. And she got first and also grand champion. I was just like, just wanted to weep with joy. Had a great time. So um, I'd like to say that I missed you. But last weekend, I didn't miss you. I was too full to be <laughs> missing you. So um, it's a good time. And I appreciate my, my brother, uh, Dan Overby, um, making room in his busy schedule. We had a, a memorial service. He got sick and then <laughs> to deliver the message, and he bore that burden with great, great joy, and I appreciate it, brother. Um, well, we are uh, going to look at a story in 1 Samuel. If, as you know, we've been going through uh, 1 Samuel 1 through 4, and today it's 5 and 6, and it's one of my uh, favorite stories in the book. And, um, and I hope that by the time we get to the end, it will not just... Um, leave you with more knowledge about the Bible, but hopefully that you'll discover something about the Lord or be reminded about something um, about the Lord that will feed your faith and give you courage and strength. Um, so to that end, let me, let me just go ahead and pray for us. Lord, I, I ask that you in, an, in a, another work of your grace would speak to us personally and powerfully. Um, Lord, I, I just have to confess from the outset that um, I have absolutely no um, dominion here. Um, this is your church. Uh, this is your bride. And um, you're the only one who can take your word and, and uh, breathe life into it in a way that impacts our hearts and our spirits that leaves us not just informed people but changed people. And so I just ask for a spirit of worship to dominate this time and, and that your people would humble, humble themselves before your word and just listen um, with, a, with a humble um, a humble and desirous heart to know what you have to say to your people this morning. So, Lord, please, just uh, we offer you this time. Um, we offer you our ears and our hearts and just ask you to work. And I pray this in the name of our, our blessed, our um, holy and awesome Savior, Jesus. Uh, amen. I'm going to start on a pessimistic note, and I don't think I'll end there, but um, one of the things that I have encountered over the, the years, especially probably in the last five years, is a, is a, a pessimistic spirit amongst many Christians. Um, because, and I think the pessimism comes from um, the fact that it seems like we're losing battles on so many different fronts as Christians. Um, as you well know, we live in what some call a post-Christian era or post-Christian country, at where Christianity is losing influence. Uh, you see that in the whole debate over um, what constitutes marriage, how is marriage to be defined, is it between a man and a woman, or is it between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And we have, we have voted in this state um, to try and keep back the tide of change, and, and of course it passed uh, narrowly last time. 
Um, but since then, we've seen, I think the count is seven states that have um, passed laws that say that two people can get married of the same sex, um, which is really, a, from what I understand of history, and I have a limited knowledge of history, it's the first time in history that that's happened, but there's a sense where um, what we're losing and it can create a sense of pessimism. And I dare say, and this may seem pessimistic to you, but I, I think at some point this state will also fold um, unless something dramatic changes because that's the flow and that's the course. And so that, that, that leaves many Christians feeling like we're losing when a sense of kind of a pessimistic spirit, like where's the power and where's the victory? It seems like we're on the defensive and we're retreating. Um, then on the family front, it's, it, I meet Christian parents who are oftentimes pessimistic about the raising of their children because they've tried everything in the arsenal of parenting to try and bring change to their child or to try and help their child um, be immune or be delivered from the kind of um, poisonous uh, influences of our culture. We do live in a wicked culture, and our children, my children, face uh, temptations and your children face temptations, the likes of which we've never seen in terms of uh, access, instant communication, internet, web. I never had that kind of kind of influence. I mean, it was there, but it was always distant, and now it's in our own homes. And um, when you combine that with the fact that, that researchers sh- are showing that many of the children who grow up in church are leaving, and it's a, it's a majority, not a minority, I came across this this article in USA Today. It was uh, 2007, so it's a little bit dated now, but but the the trend is the same. Um, that was kind of makes you stop in your tracks because um, my kids would be included in in this statistic as well, or at least they would be a potential t- statistic. Um, this is uh, 2007. The the title of it was "Young Adults Aren't Sticking with the Church." Um, Kathy Grossman writes, seven in ten." It's got a 7 in 10, 7 out of 10. Uh, Protestants ages 18 to 30, both evangelical and mainline, who went to church regularly in high school said they quit attending by 23, according to the survey by Lifeway Research. That means, uh, you look around, if this statistic is true, not all statistics are true, then 7 out of 10 of the young people who are sitting here this morning won't be here when they're 23. And that's sobering. And, and my children are not immune from the statistic. It's possible that my one or more of my children will no longer be in church when they're 23. I, there's no guarantees. Well, that can create a sense of pessimism, like, wow, it seems like Christianity is losing its influence and losing the battle. And then you combine that, what's going on in the political scene with the family, and, and then you have your own struggles in your own heart. You know, people in this room struggling with anger, struggling with lust, struggling with doubt, struggling with... Um, Greed, struggling with laziness. I mean, just a list goes on. You know the struggles in your own heart. Sometimes people feel like, like they're not gaining any ground. They're just losing. So there's this, I think some of these things, and, and certainly you could add a lot more, create a sense of pessimism in our time amongst many Christian people. Um, and the question is, how, how, how are we supposed to live out our faith with such pessimistic news around us? How is, how, what perspective are we to take on all of this stuff that doesn't leave us in kind of a frustrated pool of bitterness because we're not getting our way um, or doesn't lead to a kind of passive, well, just let it go? Um, how are we supposed to navigate these tempor- contemporary waters with faith? 
And, and I believe the story of, of 1 Samuel 5 and 6 provides a truth, um, a lesson of faith for us um, that gives us perspective and strength in times where it feels like we're losing. And the truth that feeds our faith in this chapter has to do with something about the character of God. And I, and I really want that aspect of the character of God to be the main focus, and I'll tell you what it is but as it develops. But it's the truth about God that feeds faith and I think gives us a different perspective and a confidence in times in which Christianity seems to be on the receding side of things. Now, we are not the first people in history, as you well know, um, to feel like we're losing. Um, the people of Israel, as we left them two weeks ago, at the end of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, um, they're in a place of bitter loss and failure. If you remember, they, they had two battles against their archenemy, the Philistines. Um, first battle, they lost 4,000 men. Then they decided, hey, you know what, perhaps we did it wrong. Let's grab the Ark of the Covenant, you know, like no, uh, not Noah's Ark, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, little little box that symbolized God's enthronement, his mercy, and also contained the covenant. Well, they decided, let's take this box out into battle with us, and perhaps um, we can either manipulate the Lord to force his hand to act because he's not going to allow his his holy box to be taken by the enemy, or or perhaps they thought that we were trying they were trying to help him out um, on the battlefield. Um, in either case. After the second battle, 30,000 men die. So you have this bitter loss. 34,000 men die, and they lose the most sacred um, piece of furniture of ancient Jewish worship. So if there was ever a time for God's people to feel like we have lost, um, this would be a time in which they would feel that. And keep in mind that the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's presence among his people. And it has been captured by the Philistines, the enemy. So not only did it seem like the people had lost, but it would have seemed like Yahweh of the Old Testament had lost too. Because that's how the ancient saw the, the, the divine world, is that if, if you won in battle, that meant your, your God overpowered the other God in battle. And so it was a battle of the gods, not just a battle of the peoples. So when God's people lost, it seemed from all outward appearances that the Lord was losing too. According to ancient tradition, oftentimes when uh, the victors would bring the spoils back, they would parade them through the streets. And I think, and I'd be willing to guess, that when the Philistines got this sacred artifact, this um, um, box of worship of the Lord, that they probably paraded it through the streets with shouts and cheers um, as they brought it to the temple of their God as a sign of submission and as a sign of conquest. And that's kind of where we pick up the story because we find the ark in the ancient city of, of Ashdod. Now, what we're going to find is I think of this story as kind of like four rounds, like a boxing match. And, um, and so that's kind of the backbone of this particular message. Round one has to do with Yahweh and the God of the Philistines. Um, by the way, the, the, the last story ended with the rather pessimistic, pessimistic um, statement, last verse of the story, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Um, that's how dark it is. So if you feel like uh, there's a pessimism in our time, I'd, I'd be willing to say they were far more pessimistic in their time. But we're going to learn a story about the Lord and learn a truth about the Lord. Um, round one, God versus the God of the Philistines. This is what we read. 
when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it in into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon is the name of their chief deity. They had others, but this was like the Zeus of their particular religion. Uh, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Verses 1 through 5. Now this little... um, call it round one, is somewhat comical, if not tragic, because um, this Ark of the Covenant that symbolized God's holy presence among his people is taken into the temple um, in a manner of speaking to show that it had been conquered. Yahweh had been conquered. Well, the priests or the whoever happens to tend to the temple of Dagon come in, and there's Dagon, a statue of, uh, he looks like a fish on the bottom and a man on the top. They've uncovered reliefs and pictures of of the God, um, has fallen on his face prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence of Yahweh. That's a, that's a, that's a position of abject uh, humility or submission or worship. So their God is on the ground before, before Yahweh. What they do next is, is rather pathetic as well because Dagon can't get himself up. So the priests lift him up and put him back in his place. Once again, a kind of ironic um, description to show how powerless he is. Now, the second time they come in, he's not only is he prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes the presence of Almighty Yahweh, but his hands are broken and he's headless. His head comes off and his hands come off. Now, one of the things that hands um, symbolize in terms of like an idiom in the Old Testament and the New as well is power. Uh, and it stands to reason. Um, most of what we do, whether you're typing on a computer, you're hammering a nail, uh, doing concrete work, you use your hands, uh, which is why they became symbols of power. So in the Bible, you'll hear things like Psalm 118. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. There's all three of those. It's like over and over they talk about the hand of the Lord, symbol of power. So Dagon has fallen and his hands are broken off. That's a way of saying that he is rendered completely powerless before the ark, before the presence of the Lord. Powerless. Now, round one, as I said, is basically to recognize Yahweh versus Dagon is that Yahweh now has subdued in the story the God of the enemy. That's round one. What I want you to notice Really important is that he did it all by himself. Um, he didn't call in any favors from neighboring gods. Uh, he didn't form any alliances. He didn't hold a, a congressional hearing. He didn't, didn't call in an airstrike. God brought Dagon to the ground all by himself with no help from anyone else. That's round one. Round two. We find that the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of Yahweh, the sovereign, merciful presence of Yahweh, cycling through three different 
uh, Philistine cities, three great Philistine cities. And this is what we read. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to read the little interpretations of what happens in each of those cities. In the city of Ashdod, where the people were probably shouting and triumphing and partying over the fact that the God of Israel has now been subjected to Dagon, turns a very, to a very dark note. We read that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now we go to the city of Gath. The, the, the ark is taken from that city and, and goes into the city of Gath, which happens to be the hometown of Goliath, who we'll meet later on, where we read that the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they take the Ark of the Covenant because it's causing problems in these cities and they take it to yet a third city, the city of Akron. And before they even get it into the city, we find that the people meet it on the way and they say, send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. In other words, they're, they're trying to keep it from coming into the city. Um, and then here's the summary statement. For there was a deadly, a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. Unfortunately, the King James has hemorrhoids, but it's probably tumors because it kills people. <sighs> Sorry, that's just someone came up to me afterwards, sat first service, said, mine says hemorrhoids. I'm like, <laughs> lack of preparation H in that time. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's totally distracted myself. Um, the hand of the Lord was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and then the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, I want you to notice two things about this sequence. Um, one is that it intensifies in each city. At first, um, the Lord's hand is heavy against the people, and they break out in these tumors. Um, in the second city, um, it's not just like the physical disease that they struggle with, but there's a great panic, a very great panic in verse 9. Um, and then it goes on to say that people, young and old, um, were afflicted. So there's a sense that it's intensifying. Then by the time you get to Akron, where the people don't even want the, the ark there, um, people are dying. It says that there was a deathly panic. Um, people were mortified at the idea that this ark of the covenant, uh, of, uh, symbolizing the God of Israel, is going to come into their city, and people are dying. So, so it intensifies as it goes on. It's getting worse and worse. But I want you to notice... Um, who the writer attributes it to, and that is the hand of the Lord. And there's a word play here. The hands of Dagon are broken off. He has no power to deliver his people. Meanwhile, the hand of Almighty Yahweh is coming down heavy upon his enemies. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 5, the Lord has basically brought three Philistine cities to their knees. That would be round 2. That Yahweh subdues the cities of his enemy. What I want you to notice is he did it all by himself. He didn't send word back to the armies of Israel to muster and rally and to form ranks to come to provide reinforcements. None of that happens. The Lord does all this, brings three Philistine cities to their knees all by himself without a single human soul helping all by himself. I said that's round two. So he has effectively brought the religion 
of the Philistines to the ground. He has brought three cities to their knees, all without any help from anybody, not a, not a, not a, a spear, not a bow, not a chariot, all by himself. And then we come to round three. Now, round three is a little bit more implied. Um, that is, there, there is such a crisis amongst the Philistine people. The beginning in chapter six, you read that there's kind of this crisis meeting. The, Lord of the, Philist- the lords of the Philistine cities gather together. They gather the diviners and the priests. That is, all the people who are in leadership, they gather together to figure out what are we going to do with this Ark of the Covenant that represents the God of Israel. And so the people ask the priests, what are we supposed to do? And the priests say, well, you know, let's send it back, which is an omission of defeat, by the way. Let's send it back, but let's not send it back empty. Let's, let's put some kind of a guilt offering, acknowledging we've offended him. And then the, uh, one of the things the priest goes on to say in this advice is perhaps he, that is the Lord, will lighten his hand. He will withdraw his hand of judgment and of um, destruction from the people of the Philistines. He will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. The sense of it is that God's hand went beyond the three cities to the entire nation of the, of the Philistines, which is why they're having this crisis kind of a FEMA, you know, meeting. How are we going to deal with this national emergency? So effectively, in this story, We find God subduing the God of the Philistines, three cities of the Philistines, and by the time you get to the end, the nation of the Philistines. That is, God subdues the nation of the enemy. And again, I just want us to think about this in terms of our faith and how we live in dark times. God did all of this. The God of the Scriptures, the God of the Bible, the God who came... um, in human flesh, he did all of this without any help. No help. He didn't need his people to come, help him, aid him, provide assistance. He did it all by himself. And that is part of the point of this story. Now, before we get to the final round, so far, again, this is a boxing match. He's won Round one, round two, round three. Um, Dagon, cities, and now the nation of the Philistines. Before we get to round four, we've got to look at their, their solution. The solution to the problem. So there's this crisis meeting, and they decide that they're going to send it back. And this is worthy of being read. Now, before I read this, I want to draw your attention to several things that the Philistines do. And I think it's to provide a contrast to what the people of Israel failed to do. You're going to find that the Philistines, um, with good advice, acknowledge their guilt, hence the guilt offering. They are encouraged to give glory to God, the God of Israel, and then they are encouraged to soften their hearts. That is something that the people of Israel will not do until chapter 7 when they've learned their lesson. As if the Philistines get the point earlier. Um, So with that in mind, I I want to read this. It says, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, these are their pastors, um, and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what uh, we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, (laughs) 
Return him a guilt offering. That's an acknowledgement that they have offended him, that they're guilty. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Now, it's interesting that, like, the priests of the Philistines get that when you acknowledge sin, God brings healing. Whether they knew that or were confident in that, that's, that's, that's not specified. But to go on in verse 4, it says, And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. As they have to acknowledge that he's number one God. That's giving glory to God. So there's an acknowledgement of guilt. There's, you better give glory to the Lord. Um, Continuing on, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your, and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Now, this is probably four centuries have, have, have um, taken place between the Exodus, where God brought his people out of, out of Egypt, and he just completely squashed Pharaoh and his armies, an amazing display of power, four centuries. But, but the Philistines obviously know the renown of the Lord. Um, and so they don't want to be like the Egyptians. The Egyptians were told, let it go, and they didn't let the people go, and as a result, they were destroyed. And here they're saying, don't do that. Let's, let's not try and hold on to this ark and find ourselves on the other side of God's wrath. Let's, let's let it go, unlike the Egyptians. Um, and then the text continues to show what their, what their solution to the problem is. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, uh, and yoke the cows to the cart, um, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in, put, put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, it's an Israelite city, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand, there's the word again, hand, that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So this is the plan, and it's it's a test of sorts. Like they know they need to get rid of it. You can't get rid of it without sending something with it. If it truly is the Lord, you've got to make some kind of appeasement. They couldn't destroy it. I mean, they, they feared it way too much to destroy it. So they come up with this plan, a kind of a test. They take two cows that have never been yoked that have recently given birth to calves. The maternal instinct of a cow is to stay with his calf. And so the idea is if these cows go straight up to Beth Shemesh, denying their maternal instinct to stay with their cows, then we're going to know that it's the hand of the Lord that has struck, done all this devastation to our God and to our cities and to our people. So that's what they do. They put the ark, they strap it to a new cart, um, put on two cows that have never been yoked before, and they keep the calves back. And what is it that the cows do? Well, they take this cart without turning to the left or the right, mooing as they went, as they were lowing as they went, right straight up to Beth Shemesh without stopping. And the, 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 the Philistines followed it. It's like a procession. I mean, remember the Philistines have won. The, the pr- pr- fresh procession of, of Philistines, when they brought the ark into Ashdod, I'm sure it was triumphant, but now they're bringing it back. 
like a, in a dark moment with egg on their face. And they get to the border of Beth Shemesh and they let it go. And the people of Israel see it as they're gathering the wheat and they, they, they rejoice and they, um, they sacrifice and so forth because they have the ark back. And notice, God brings the ark back without any help from a single Israeli person all by himself. All by himself. He didn't need the people of Israel to fight his battle. He brought the Philistines to their knees in three rounds and then brought his symbol of his presence, sovereignty and mercy, back to his people. But here we come to the last round. And this is the, this is the, um, the most surprising one because the Philistines are the arch enemy. And you expect God to bring destruction on the Philistines, the armies of Israel, right? the, the enemies of Israel. But something happens in the Israelite town of Beth Shemesh that causes God's hand to destroy some of the people there too. There we read that the Lord, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Some texts say into the ark, others on the ark. Um, he struck 70 men of them. Some texts say 50,070. There's some ancient discrepancies. Um, bottom line is that a lot of people died in this town. Um, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with, with a great blow. This is, this is like round four. Only this time, the blow is at his own people. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord? Like, this holy God. They, they recognize something about the Lord that whether you're Philistine or you're an Israelite, you need to get across in your faith. And that is, the Lord God of Israel is a holy God, and he will uphold the glory of his holiness, even if it costs him some of his own people. And the people of, of, the, of, the, of the Bible had had to learn that over and over and over and over again, that, that you don't approach God in kind of a casual or an irreverent way. Um, otherwise, his hand will be against you. Did I finish that? No, I didn't. So, verse 21, so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jearim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the, on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Um, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jearim, a long time passed, some 20 years, kind of it goes into seclusion, the ark of the covenant. It's interesting, the Israelite city does to the ark what all the Philistine cities did with the ark. They don't want it. They don't want it. Because who can stand before a holy God? And this, I think, is, a, is another round, is that the Lord is passionate about um, his name. And I'd always say this. Um, there's an intolerance um, for irreverence. And in a manner of speaking, Yahweh subdues what I call here superficial and irreverent religion. And he purges his people. Uh, the Philistines learned the lesson that 
we fear this thing, acknowledge our guilt and soften our hearts and give glory to God. The people of Israel in round four, they don't get it. They just send it away. They do none of that. There's no humility. There's no repentance. There's no, we have sinned against the Lord our God. Um, Because whenever that's the case, um, God offers mercy and forgiveness. And he restores the relationship. So here you have four rounds. Um, God all by himself brings the God of the Philistines down. He brings three cities of the Philistines down. Indeed, he brings the nation down. And then in kind of an upset, shows the people of Israel, you better take me seriously too. So what is this supposed to teach us? Um, As people who profess to believe in the exact same God that was there in that ancient time. What is it supposed to do for us in a time where we experience a lot of pessimism because of what we see in the political scene? What you might experience in your family or even in your own heart? And I think this is the lesson. It's coming down to one thing. The lesson is this, and this is the truth, one of the truths about God, one of the main bedrock critical truths for God's people to believe, and not just with your head, but your heart, that the Lord God of Israel is a self-sufficient and universally sovereign God. Let me just say that again. Write it down. That Yahweh... The Lord God of the Bible is a self-sufficient. That means he has absolutely no need. Uh, Paul would say this, um, he's quoted in Acts, that um, the Lord is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. He doesn't need any of us. That's self-sufficiency. Doesn't need any help, no assistance. Whenever he displays power or uses his hand, there is no diminishing of strength or power whatsoever because it's limitless. So he is... He is a self-sufficient and universal, universally sovereign Lord. He is God of Israel. He is God of the Philistines. All of those are his jurisdiction. He is the God of of, of the Egyptians and the God of the Babylonians. There's no place that he does not have jurisdiction, including the temple of his enemy. He presides over everything. And as such, here's the thing. If he is self-sufficient and universally sovereign over all things, then he never loses a battle, ever. No matter how, how much it may seem from our human eyes that the Lord is losing, it's not true according to the Scripture. He always wins the battle. Even when it seems like he's losing, he's winning the battle. The greatest Um, loss in all of history is when jealous and evil men nailed the only perfect man to a cross. The greatest loss by God himself and to humanity itself was the very thing that God used to triumph and conquer sin and death and the enemy, that is uh, the demonic. That even in the loss, he gains victory, and that's true every single time. So even when it seems like we're losing, we're not losing, or God's not losing, I should say. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he has plans. Sometimes his plans aren't to gain victory by saving, but to gain victory by judging. 
So what he requires of us as a people, as Christians, this is what he requires of Parkway Community Church. He doesn't require us to come and win the battle for him. Um, He is and will always be the deliverer, not us. He will always be forever, ultimately, the defender of his glory and of his people, those chosen ones, not us. He just graciously allows us to participate. But the minute we think that he needs us, we have lost sight of the God of the Bible and of Jesus himself. And everything that the ark stood for, I said this two weeks ago, the sovereign, the enthronement of God, the mercy seat of God in covenant with his people was fulfilled in the person of Jesus um, where God has placed his authority as the king of kings, the mercy seat where we have forgiveness and who has initiated a new covenant by his blood. So it's Jesus, understand, from a New Testament perspective, who doesn't need our help to win the battle. What he calls of us in light of this, this, that he is a self-sufficient, universally sovereign Lord, is he calls us to, in a humble and reverent attitude, trust him and by grace, be faithful to his word. That means that's, that's, all, that's our job. Our job was never to win the battle. He never called us to do that. That means we would get the glory. Our job in the battle is to trust him with a humble and reverent attitude and simply to follow through on what he calls us to do by faith. We leave the winning up to him because because. Like I said, he never loses. We can trust that. So you look at, you read your newspaper and you feel like you're going to get pessimistic. Just remember, he never loses. Uh, you, you feel like, wow, there's so much conflict in my family. I can't, I can't seem to be able to save my kids. Well, you can't save your kids. There's only one person who can do that, and that's him. He's the one who's going to win, and he wins every time, at least in the way that he has designed. Or even in your own soul. We all have fractured souls that God is mending. And it's not by giving every ounce of human strength to overcome our brokenness as much as it is looking upward to the exalted, self-sufficient, sovereign God who gives us the grace. And know that even in our own hearts, the battle still belongs to the Lord. Now you might say, well, that that makes me entirely passive then. I just... (laughs) That belongs to the Lord. I don't got to do anything. You know what? If, if, if maybe if you intellectualize that, that's true. But if you lay hold, or that truth lays hold of your heart, then it does exact opposite. It it, it creates courage and it gives strength to engage. Um. In other words, before we ever thinking think we're going to go doing something for the Lord. We have to stop and do what God calls us to do in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. So be still. So in other words, stop your striving, stop your worrying, stop your anxiety about your politics and about your families, even about your own soul. Stop it. Be still and know that I, I am God, not you. And then he goes on to say, um, I will be exalted among the nations. And I will be exalted in the earth. Um, that is not a divine wish. That is a divine certainty. It will happen. So when all of the dust settles in human history and all of the chaos, 
every knee will be bowing in one direction. And that's not because we have contributed anything to what the Lord has done. At the end of time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because he is Lord and he will and will always win the battle. So here's the thing. Your worries, your life, and your struggles, and your job, and your politics, the world around us, if you can believe the simple truth from here each day and know that your God is exalted, self-sufficient, and universally sovereign, that he loves you, then it makes all the difference. We don't have to walk with a pessimistic attitude. We walk with a confident victory because the Lord, the Lord wins the battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would grant us confidence in that very truth. Um, we can talk about the truth. We can exposit the truth. We can read the truth. But unless your Holy Spirit gives power to your truth, then we leave here with yet another theology lesson and without change. So, Lord, please, in, I just beg of you in the name of Jesus and according to the mercy grace of Jesus, I just pray that you would transform Parkway Community Church as a body of believers, that we would know, that we would know, that we would know that you are exalted and that you rule on the throne and that you always win the battle, either in salvation or in judgment. And we pray this in his name.